Good morning, familia. Is that because we changed the time? <laughs> Good morning, familia. Thank you so much. Uh, the scripture for today comes from the uh, book of Galatians, chapter 5, and we're going to be reading from verses 16 to 21. Galatians, chapter 5, verses uh, 16 to 21. And the word of the Lord goes like this. So I say, walk by the Spirit... And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, verse 20. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warned you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God of God. This is the word of the Lord. Um, last week, Pastor Lon started introduce the concept of freedom. Uh, so for about two hours, he talked about what freedom, real freedom is. Man, that took you so, yeah, you guys are tired. <laughs> uh, he talked about what real freedom is and what real freedom looks like. The text that we just read today is talking about the same topic. It's a continuation of what he started last week. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that this concept of freedom is not unique to Christianity, as you know. Everyone talks about freedom, especially in the world where we live today. Uh, everyone is in love with freedom. The difference, though, it has to do with the definition of freedom. So, for example, uh, for some people, the, a good definition of freedom is the absence of rules and regulations. You know, my, my daughters love that definition. Uh, for some of the people, um, freedom is following your own heart, following your own desires. As you're going to see in a second, that is the worst thing that you could do. But the most popular one, I believe, is this one that says, I get to do what I want whenever I want it. As long as I don't hurt anybody. And there's all kinds of problems with that idea. Studying that everything that you do does affect everyone, not just yourself. What I found even more interesting, interesting is that even among the secular world, there's people um, who have that, that, that understand that these definitions of freedom are not really helpful. And are not really good either. Among those thinkers, you find a man called Barry Schwartz, which is a secular psychologist. And he gives this talk about the paradox of choice. And he says that everyone, most people, he would say, uh, have this unspoken official dogma. They have this idea by, the, by which they live by. And he says that the popular idea is this, maximize your happiness by, maximize, by maximizing your individual freedom. 
The way to maximize freedom is to maximize choice. And then he goes for another 15 minutes talking about why that's not a good idea. But at the end of that talk, uh, he puts on the screen this picture of a fishbowl with a big fish and a little fish. And the big fish is telling, is telling the little fish, you can be anything you want to be no limits. But then he says this. The truth of the matter is that if you shatter that fishbowl, so that everything is possible, you don't have freedom. You have paralysis because the fish die or dies. If you shatter the fishbowl so that everything is possible, you decrease satisfaction. Everybody needs a fishbowl, he says. The absence of some metaphorical fishbowl is a recipe for misery and I suspect disaster. So he comes to this conclusion, freedom is not about you being limited. It's, it's about you not being limited. Freedom has to do about something else. So I would like to offer you a definition of freedom that I believe is biblical and it comes from the text that we just read today. Freedom is you and I living according to our original design. Freedom is about you and I living according to our original design. Just like a fish cannot be free outside of water, human beings are not free without God, without his words, without his principles, and especially without his spirit. Without God, his word, his principles, and his spirit, there is no freedom. That's why the Bible says that wherever the Spirit is, there is freedom. So these are the two questions that I'm going to ask the text today. Number one, what is required of us to be led by the Spirit so we are free or we experience freedom? And the second question is, what does the Spirit do in order to help us? Accomplish that freedom. You guys with me? All right, let's look at the first one. What's required of us? So let me prep you for this because the first part of the sermon, which is like three-fourths of the sermon, um, I believe to be a little bit, I, I believe that it's a little bit confrontational. Now, that's not my style. Uh, yes, it is. But, <laughs> but please stay with me because uh, if you don't get the first part, you won't get the second one. So Paul... Ask, is asking us to uh, ask a very simple question. Is there anything required of us? And I think that the answer is just as simple. Honesty. If you want to walk by the Spirit or be led by the Spirit, it requires honesty. Honesty about who you are and honesty about the things you love. It's all about Honesty. So in verse 16, he opens up this section calling us to not gratify the desires of the flesh. And in that verse, you find two very important words, the word gratify and the word desire. To not gratify simply means to not to surrender or to yield to our flesh. And the word desire 
might be one of the most important words in the Bible if you want to understand the dynamics of your heart. The word desire there in the original is the word epithemia. It's a word that appears 38 times in the Bible and is usually translated as a negative term, like evil desires or lust. But there's some other translations that would translate the word desire or epithemia like a longing, a deep desire, or a craving. But not necessarily for evil things. An epithemia is when we have, we have this ability to grab something really good and elevate it to the point that it becomes an ultimate thing to the point that we cannot live without it. That's an epithemia. It's to grab something good and elevate it to such a position that we cannot live without it. It's to long for something, to crave for something, to want something way too much that if you don't have it, you're miserable, you have no peace, and you have no joy. That's an epithemia. And what Paul is going to say is that anything could be an epithemia. So James, for example, uses the same word, um, trying to argue why is it that we fight with one another, right? So if you're like me, whenever I have an issue with somebody, with my wife or my kids or a friend or something, and I argue with them, my first reaction is to say, you are making me upset. And what James is going to argue is that the person in front of me does not have the ability to get me upset. I get upset because of my desires, he says. That's epithemia. So the reason why we fight is because of our epithemias. The reason why, he says, you kill is because of your epithemias. The reason why we don't know how to pray is because of our epithemias. The reason why we covet is because of our epithemias. It's just good things that become ultimate things to the point that we are miserable if we don't have them. St. Augustine used to call these inordinate desires. Once again, it's to want a good thing way too much to the point that becomes an ultimate thing. Now, this is where you're going to get, it's going to get complicated because from verses um, 19 to 21, you have a list of things that Paul calls the acts of the flesh. And there are 15 sins there listed. And what I want to argue as we go through this list is that every single one of those sins are the result of our epithemias, our desires. The reason why we struggle with things like that is because we love good things way too much. And I'm going to prove my point. Verses 19 to 21, you got all these 15 sins, and they are divided into four different groups. The first group is what we will call the sexual sins. So in verse 19, it, calls about, it talks about sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. That all has to do with sexual sins. Sex outside of marriage, adultery, pornography, lack of self-control in any of those areas. But the question that I have to ask you, and you have to ask yourself, is this. Is there anything wrong with us wanting to have intimacy with somebody. If you're married or you're planning to be married, you better say no. 
There's nothing wrong with you wanting to have an intimate relationship at that level with somebody else. That was God's idea. You know that. You see that before the fall, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's actually what the word no means in Genesis. Adam knew Eve. I hope you know that I was not about exchanging information. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when this good thing becomes an ultimate thing and becomes an epithemia. And then he controls you. And then he drives you. And then he leads you to sacrifice the people you love. And he leads you to sacrifice your relationship with the Lord. And he keeps you from your original design. Do you understand why, for example, all sexual sins are so dangerous? They offer pleasure without commitment. They offer satisfaction without intimacy. They offer a good time without relationship. It's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing that leads to paralysis, dissatisfaction, misery, and disaster. That's not freedom. The second group, you find it in verse 20, and it has to do with idolatry and witchcraft. Now, if I were to put that in simple terms, it's us as human beings, even as Christians, trying to find security in something or someone outside of God, is us trying to have a false sense of control. Do you have an idea why is it that it's so easy for us to have idols? Because we feel that we are in control. If I have an idol, I can control my destiny, my life, my situation. But do you know why idols are so dangerous? Because they end up controlling you. That's the thing with idolatry. We raise them up because we think that we're going to be in control, and at the end of the day, they end up controlling us. So let's use the example of work. Is work evil? Of course not. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God works, and he creates his creatures to work. It's not a punishment, you know? But what happened when work becomes something else? If you use work as you means, uh, as a way for you to feel successful, as a way for you to feel well, as a way for you to feel that you're worthy, what happened when you turn your work into that? Well, here, you become a slave to it. Out of a sudden, you cannot stop. It is never enough. And you start sacrificing the people you love, your relationship with the Lord, and now he controls you. It's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing that eventually leads to paralysis, dissatisfaction, misery, and disaster. That's not freedom. The third group has to do with relationships. And in this category, there are eight sins, eight different sins. Verses 20 to 21, it talks about hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, that means anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy. Pause there for a second because as a church usually, not this church, but the church in general, 
usually we see the first two categories as really big sins. But in this list, eh, that's all right. And what Paul is doing here is that there's no difference between the first two categories and this one. You know why? Because all of these sins destroy unity, causes division, and they do not allow us to love one another and serve one another. It's impossible to have any kind of relationship, healthy relationship, with any of these things. So let me give you a couple of examples here. Let's think for a second of jealousy and fits of rage. The question will be, is there anything wrong with you being a little bit jealous? Once again, if you're married, you have to agree with me that there's nothing wrong with you being a little bit jealous. You know why? Because God is a jealous God. He wants us for himself. He knows that he's the best for me. So there's no problem with jealousy. So if you're in a relationship and you don't mind sharing your spouse with somebody else, don't you think that there's something wrong? Jealousy becomes a big issue when it is no longer about love and wanting you to you wanting wanting to protect your spouse. But when it becomes about power, and when it becomes about control, then it becomes an epithemia, and then you strangle the people that you love, and you suffocate them. Who was that? Why did you look at him like that? I was, I was paying for the hamburger, you know? <laughs> Let's think about selfish ambitions and envy. Is there anything wrong with you having things and wanting things? Of course not. That's one of the reasons why the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is you shall not steal. That implies that you're entitled to have your own things. But what happens when you love things way too much? When your entire life is about having things? Out of a sudden, it is never enough. You can never experience contentment. You cannot be generous. And you cannot give anything in exchange of nothing. That's when we grab something that is a good thing, that becomes an ultimate thing, that leads to paralysis, dissatisfaction, misery, and disaster. And that's not freedom. The last group of sins has to do with lifestyles. And you find them in verse 21, and he talks about drunkenness and, orgy, and orgies. So Paul here is talking about a group of people that are abusing alcohol. And when he talks about orgies, he's talking about these pagan celebrations in, in honor of a pagan god. I love the way the NLT translates this one here because they call it wild parties. So here's the question for you. Is there anything wrong with celebrations? Is there anything wrong with Christians having fun? 
Of course not. What do you think the word rejoice means in the Bible? Here, some very, very spiritual people seem to believe that rejoice means this. I am so happy. <laughs> and you can't see it, but look, you got to see my heart. I'm so happy. <laughs> That's not what rejoice means. And you look at the Israelites and their celebration. These people were party people. That's why I think the Latinos are going to do really good in heaven. <laughs> we are party people. Have you ever wondered why Jesus' first miracle, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and Rob didn't say anything to me in the first service, so. <laughs> Have you ever wondered why Jesus' first miracle was in a wedding, and it involved wine? There is nothing wrong with any of those things. The problem is when these good things become ultimate things. And fun and celebrations become a must and a need. That you're never happy unless you have fun. I think that that's one of the reasons why as a society we are addicted to entertainment. Did you know that? Go ahead and do your own little research and see how much money we spend as a nation in entertainment. I think that's one of the reasons why some of the spiritual disciplines that have been exercised throughout history, such as meditation and contemplation and solitude, are boring, no longer cool. Because we have grabbed something that is good, and we make it ultimate. And eventually that leads to paralysis, dissatisfaction, misery, and disaster. Now... The question is, why do we do that? Why is it that the tendency of the human heart, even as Christians, is to grab these good things and elevate them and make them ultimate things? Why do we do that? And this is where honesty is required. And I want you to hear me really well. Because you hate your sin. And you also love it. Because we hate our sin. But we also love it. Look at verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict, that means war with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. There's no such a thing as, oops, I did it again. Is we love our sin. That's what Romans 7 argues as well. We have this weird relationship with it. We both hate it and love it. And unless you recognize that, you can never be set free. That's what is required for Christians to be honest. It is required of us to be honest. Listen to the lyrics of this song, secular song. I feel something so right doing the wrong thing. I feel something so wrong doing the right thing. I couldn't lie, I couldn't lie. Everything that kills me makes me feel alive. 
That's a song called Counting Stars. The young man that wrote that grew up in Christianity. And he walked away from faith. And every time I've, I've heard that song, I always wonder the same thing. I wonder if he, when what, he was a Christian, he was as honest with his struggle as he is right now with this song. It is required of us to be honest. To recognize that we're broken much more than what we think we are. We are all broken people. You know, a few months ago, I went to the gym, because you got to take this baby, keep this baby in shape. Uh, <laughs> I, I went to the gym, and I was running a little bit. Actually, it was more like fast walking, but I call it running. Uh, <laughs> and as I'm running, I realized that I'm running with this group of friends that i never seen before, all young adults, just like me. But there's something special about them because every single one of them were young adults with special needs. And it was one of those God moments that you could just never forget. And I suddenly realized that I'm running among friends. There's just a bunch of us, all broken people, running together. The only difference between them and me is that they wear their brokenness on the outside and I have my brokenness inside. That they cannot hide their brokenness, and I'm an expert hiding it. And that's what the church ought to be. That's why one of our values is that we are a hospital, not a social club. We are broken people running together. That we struggle with our epithemias all the time. There's no such a thing as perfect Christian. And none of us are just victims. We both hate and love our sin. So let me tell you what Jack Miller, the founder of World Harvest Mission, would tell his students all the time. Cheer up! You are worse than what you think. <laughs> but he would never stop there. He would say, cheer up. God's spirit works in your weakness. And that's what leads me to my second point. Or to the second question. What is it that the spirit does to help us in this? And what I love about this letter, what I bought about this thing, is that he mentions the, the spirit quite a few times. For example, in chapter 3, uh, he calls the Spirit uh, the agent that gives us faith and is received by faith. In the same chapter 3, he tells us that the, the Holy Spirit is the agent of sanctification, help us grow into the likeness of Jesus. In chapter 4, four he calls the Spirit an agent of adoption. It's because we have the Spirit that we know that we have been adopted by God. He is our Father. We are His children. And in chapter 5, he calls, the Spirit comes in two different occasions, and in one he tells us that he's the agent of hope. That's how we know that we have hope. And the second one is here. 
And here it talks about the Spirit in two different ways. Walk by the Spirit in verse 16, and in verse 18, be led by the Spirit. Notice that it doesn't say walk with the Spirit, but by the Spirit. That is very significant. Because even though the Holy Spirit has so many different ministries, and if you look into other passages, you see all these ministries of the Holy Spirit. Here we find the number one role or ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it has to do with influence. Jesus, when he talked about the Holy Spirit, talk, talked about him as an advocate and as a counselor. An advocate is, is someone that is talking on your behalf. And someone that is talking to you. A counselor is someone that is talking on your behalf and is talking to you. So what is the primary role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to this thing? To convince you. To convince you of what? To convince you of everything else that the letter has said. That even though you are so broken because of all your epithemias, that even though you are so sinful because of the things you love, you are still loved, you are still forgiven, you are still accepted, you are still redeemed, you are still appreciated, you are still special. That's what the Spirit does time after time. He reminds you, and He speaks to you, and He convinces you like a wood counselor would do. That's why Jesus Christ, when He talked about the Holy Spirit, He said that the Holy Spirit will come to remind us of everything that He said. He says that the Holy Spirit will come to testify about Him. He said that the Spirit will come to glorify Him. You know what the glorify means? The word glory means give weight. The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus look beautiful. So and so beautiful that whenever we desire something else, compared to Jesus, this is nothing. This is nothing. So this is what the Spirit does. Is there anything that your idols, your passions, your desires, your epithemias can give you that you don't have in Jesus Christ already. That's what he does. Is there anything that the world could give you that you don't have in Jesus Christ already? You want acceptance? You have been accepted. You want love? You have been loved. You want forgiveness? You have been forgiven. You want appreciation? You have been appreciated. You wonder if you have any worth? You have worth. Jesus Christ died for you. You feel lonely? You have been adopted. Are you insecure? You have been adopted. Do you know why the Holy Spirit is so needed like that? Because in order for us to change, it's not just about you saying no to sin. It's not just about you saying no to your desires. You ought to do that. But the Spirit says, look at what you want. 
And look at what Jesus offers. Look at what you want. And look at what you have in Jesus. And that will be the only way that you could deal with your epithemias. When Jesus becomes so and so sweet that nothing else can be compared to him. Do you have that? Are you honest enough about the reality of your heart? Cheer up. You're worse than what you think you are. Cheer up. The Holy Spirit works with your witness, in your weaknesses. Cheer up. The gospel is far greater than you can imagine. Let's pray. Lord, how easy it is for us to pretend that everything is okay. How hard is it, Lord, for us as Christians to truly acknowledge that we are broken, that we both hate and love our sin? Lord, how hard it is sometimes, many times, to listen to the sweet voice of the amazing counselor, the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you give us a tender heart to listen to him and to allow him to convince us, Lord, that there is nothing more beautiful, more sweet, more secure than Jesus Christ and what he did for us. We want to be people that walk by the Spirit and is led by the Spirit. So we won't gratify the desires of our flesh. Please forgive us. Please forgive us. And give us the freedom that we so much want. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say,